Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Neil. The history behind pop culture. I'm Jem Daduchu, and this time round, we're talking Assassin's Creed, the video game, which came out in the year 2007. And I remember when it came out, it really did bring to life medieval Middle Eastern cities, and it was a revolutionary game for its time. You've been here for three and a half hours. Now, how many different ways do you want me to tell the same story? Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No. It's a pretty cool place. I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot? As your leader, I encourage you from time to time, and always in a respectful manner, to question my logic. Now to run a computer check on this tape and the professor. Dodge this. The tracks go off in this direction. Now, a little bit about the game itself before we get into the history. What's interesting is that the company that created Assassin's Creed originally branched it off from a once big brand called Prince of Persia. Now, that was a, a big deal, perhaps in the times of the PlayStation 1 and 2. And you may have played them as a kid. They were very fantastical. They had more in common with something like Disney's Aladdin than they had anything to do with actual Persian history. But as they tended to make those games grittier and grittier, went from being cartoonish to more and more gritty, some people in the background thought, well, why don't we actually make them a bit more historical, historically accurate? So the gimmick about The Prince of Persia is you could turn time backwards and forwards so you that's some of the ways you solve puzzles that's some of the ways you fought battles and you're kind of never that far away from rewinding time a little bit something that the prince of persia and assassin's creed have in common as well as a video game uh, heritage is the fact that they've both been made into rather underwhelming movies people have completely forgotten about the prince of persia movie uh, that starred jake gillenhall 
that man dripping in Iranian heritage there playing the prince. And it was one of these things which people said, you know, there's a bit of whitewashing controversy, but more importantly, it wasn't very good. And then with Assassin's Creed, that had quite the the quite the cast, and I was looking forward to it and seeing things like the actual physical leaps of faith uh, actually used rather than CGI'd. Had a lot of potential. Michael Fassbender, for heaven's sakes, he's a great actor, but the whole thing was very, very po-faced and seemed to forget that it came from a video game and that you were meant to actually have fun whilst watching a movie. Regardless, the thing is, though, with the very first Assassin's Creed, and the first one was the most grounded in history. It is worth pointing out there will be some mild spoilers for the game, but the it was set at the end of the 12th century, just after the siege of Acre in basically the the time of the third crusade and you indeed have richard the lionheart turning up so with this particular scenario all of this is likely to have happened However, uh, the fundamentals of the assassins, who are the assassins? They are indeed a real group. We get the word assassin from the Al-Hashashins, which is what they were called in the Middle East. Now, their actual name has led to quite a lot of debate. And what the debate's about is, did they actually use drugs? Uh, were they sort of drugging young men and turning them into zealots? Well... I'm sorry to tell you this, but it's still very much uh, up for debate. And I do like the idea that the Hashashins are actually kind of slang in Arabic for like yobs, for no goods, because they weren't particularly loved in the Muslim community either. And what I want to do is use Assassin's Creed and say, look, it's set in the Crusades and That was my area of specialization at university. And that's important because I did the Crusades in the 1990s, before 9-11. Nobody cared about the Crusades in the 1990s. They were a complete dead end of history. Only the mustiest, most corduroy-wearing of historians cared about the Crusades. They were seen in the context of the day, kind of like the Battle of Hastings or the Battle of Agincourt. They were interesting and exotic, but not very relevant to the world around us. All that changed on one sunny September day in America in the year 2001. The terrorist attacks of 9-11 basically showed the world that there were some people who took their religion very, very seriously. And since then, the rise of Islamic terrorism and Western armies tramping around in the Middle East have led to some really terrible history and indeed news stories around the Crusades. The Crusades have become politicized. This completely dead-end corner has become a political hotbed for the last 15, 16 years. And I would like to use this podcast to perhaps explain some of the stuff that did happen and some of the stuff that didn't happen as well. So, How did the Crusades actually happen? Because I've seen a number of revisionist historians saying the first crusade 
when a bunch of Western knights marched into the Middle East with the goal to capture Jerusalem. This is actually a response to Islamic atrocities. People don't seem to want to be able to admit to the fact that the West started it first. Other people also look to the Crusades and say this is a complete clash of civilizations, which again, when you look into the deeper context of it, that ain't true either. There is no reason why Islam and Christianity can't live side by side because they are able to do so in the middle of the Crusades. So I want to go way back. I want to go back to the time of, of Jesus. And indeed, when you look at the teachings of Jesus, he is unambiguous about violence. It's a bad thing that should be avoided at all cost. Love thy brother, turn the other cheek, do unto others of you as you would have done unto yourself. All those sorts of quotes are there in the Bible. So the question is, how? How did Christians use some kind of sleight of hand to get from what Jesus was saying about avoid violence to declaring war on God's behalf? And to do that, you have to understand what happened to Europe in the early period of the Middle Ages, because Europe was very much under attack. Some people are going to say, oh, yes, look at the Muslim explosion out of the Middle East across North Africa and into Spain, Portugal and southern France. That's true. And indeed, it is worth remembering that there are some places in southern Spain that to this day have been under Muslim rule longer than Christian that's worth pausing on. But it was not a hotbed of violence all the time. Once the conquest happened, when you look at Islamic Iberian Peninsula, you'll see it was an area of science and learning. And there were wars and battles, but no more so than what was happening in, let's say, between France and the various principalities of Germany. However, it wasn't just threats from Islam that threatened Christianity in the early medieval era. I find it interesting that when England was conquered by the Angles, Jutes and Saxons, this supposedly Christian country fell into paganism. I would argue that that's a sign that Christianity was one of the religions being practiced at the time of the Romans. Just because the Roman emperor decided that they were going to become Christian did not mean that uh, everybody became Christian, but Pope Gregory the Great decided to send specifically missionaries back into England to re-spread the word of Christianity. We're talking about the, the 700s before England is truly Christian again. So it was attacked by the pagan Angles, Jutes and Saxons. And then just when everything had settled down and we've now got Christian Anglo-Saxon England, it then got attacked over and over again by the Vikings. And the Vikings certainly didn't just attack, attack England. They also attacked Scotland and Ireland. And of course, we've got Normandy in France, which comes basically from the Northmen, the Vikings. The Normans had Viking blood. Paris was besieged multiple times by the Vikings. So, yeah, it's not hard to create a context of Europe was under attack 
Christianity was threatened from multiple different sides over multiple centuries. In the East, in places like the very Christian country of Hungary, they were attacked uh, by the Huns in the late Roman era, which is where you get the term Hungary, but then later by the Magyars, which were kind of like the Huns, but again, pagan horsemen coming in from the East, which is why in Hungary, from Hun, they speak Magyar from the Magyars. So there you go. That's that little explanation there. But what it means is that there were many Christian theologians at the time coming up with the idea of the just war. When your abbeys and churches are being desecrated and annihilated by Vikings, don't Christians have the right to defend themselves? And so this idea of turn the other cheek turned into you have the right to defend yourself. And therefore, it didn't take much more of a few steps of philosophical sleight of hand to get to where we can declare a proactive, preemptive war for God. The other person that's worth just throwing into how Christianity was militarized was the Emperor Constantine. Now, he's seen very much as the Christian emperor, and he was the one who fought multiple battles in a civil war and saw that his victories came from Jesus Uh, The Milvian Bridge is the critical battle, which he should have lost, but he held up a huge banner of Jesus Christ and it led to victory there, in which case Jesus is being used in a war banner, a bit like you might march into battle with your standard of Ares or something like that. The complete opposite, pretty much, of what Jesus had in mind. But suddenly we go from Christians being persecuted in the Roman era to the Roman emperor saying that it's the state religion to try and glue the late empire together. And now you have an army of Christ, quite literally. So this was very broad brushstrokes. This was the evolution. And then in the 1090s at the Council of Clermont, we have uh, Pope Urban II, and he does the famous speech, which, well, I say famous speech. What's interesting is there are a number of first-hand accounts. They don't agree quite what was said, but the bottom line was it was time to reclaim the the holy seat of Jerusalem, which many people, many peasants, many Westerners would have seen as heaven on earth, quite literally, to declare a mass pilgrimage to Jerusalem and to make it Christian again because of it's being defiled by those Turks and those Muslims, don't you know? Now, this was a weird reading of history because it had been a Muslim city for, I mean, roughly 400 years. And yes, the the, the revisionists point out there'd been massacres. There'd been attacks on Christian pilgrims in the area. That's true. Some Bedouin uh, tribes did attack some Christians and massacred them, and and it was known that pilgrims carried uh, no weapons whatsoever. So that was a kind of war crime of its time. But that happened multiple popes earlier. It happened 22 years before the Council of Clermont. Now, we all know that things travel a bit slowly in the medieval world, but not that slowly. 
What it seems to be more of is that the there'd recently been a schism between Christianity in the West under the Pope and Christianity in the East under the Byzantine Empire, uh, the capital city being Constantinople. And the two had been talking to each other at roughly the same time as the Council of Clermont, and the Byzantine Empire was losing territory to the Muslim Turks. And it seems that the idea was more a case of, hey, can you send a Western army over here and then we can reclaim some of our territory and all we'll think about reunifying the churches. That is conjecture, but it seems a better excuse than the one actually given at the council. Anyway, this all culminated in the First Crusade marching through Uh, Well, across the whole of Europe and then on into Anatolia and then all the way down the coast, uh, stopping at a city called Antioch, where there was a year long siege. And then they ended up getting into Jerusalem in the year 1099 and they celebrated recapturing the holiest city on earth to Christians by carrying out one of the bloodiest massacres in Jerusalem's long and bloody history. So that's the first crusade. Now, I have one podcast to do, so I'm not going to go through all the uh, all the Crusades, except to say I've written a book, a sort of starting point uh, for the Crusades called Deus Vault, A Concise History of the Crusades. So you can get all this in that book. And indeed, I sort of start with the whole 9-11 thing there as well. But we now have to fast forward a few generations to the 1080s. And What's happened is that the Crusaders have got a number of different principalities and kingdoms in the Middle East, in modern day Syria and Israel and Palestine. And they always had a problem with manpower. They had enough knights and soldiers to man all the amazingly built castles in the area. Arguably, the greatest castle ever built is Crack de Chevalier, the Rock of the Knights in modern-day Syria. Uh, it's been actually used as a fortification recently in the war with ISIS and has actually been uh, damaged through bombings, which is terrible. But that's something that's been around for about 800 years and is still an effective fortification. And when it did eventually fall, you had dozens of knights surrounded by an entire army and it still took them time to to break into that fort so it's a remarkable fort and it certainly wasn't the only one and the main powerhouse of military might in the middle east were thing uh, groups called the military orders the two most famous ones are the hospitallers and templars again maybe time for more detail another podcast but what these guys essentially were If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right 
for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, as you are aware, monks prayed. They stayed away from everybody else. They lived in communities. They took a vow of poverty and chastity, and they spent all their time praying or indeed writing out treaties and copies of the bible and verse and so on and so forth the military orders were basically exactly the same thing except these men did not pray they fought for god and they were the best trained best equipped knights the west had they were fabulously wealthy they reported directly into the pope and not the king of jerusalem which sometimes caused problems and led to uh, complex political situations um, yes, again, an entire book can be written on those. But they got so much money from various donations in the West that they were able to build and experiment in building some of the most elaborate fortifications and castles the world has ever seen. So those castles kept the Holy Land safe from Muslim invaders. Until Saladin turned up. I'm sure most people have heard of Saladin. And... He basically lured the Crusaders into a pitch battle. And it the hospitalers actually warned and said, look, if we lose this battle, we won't have the men to man the fortifications. We could lose everything all in one battle. And actually, when you look at history, it is interesting how so many battles are referred to as being decisive. And yet you have the same side slugging it out a year later. But the Battle of Hattin which is where the Western knights met Saladin on the horns of Hattin, a hill, a hill area, it genuinely was a decisive victory for Saladin. He'd very carefully poisoned all the wells and he'd even burnt bushes. We're talking about hot, hot Middle Eastern weather here, exacerbated by flames and no water. And what you can summarize most crusader clashes with the Muslims is the West liked heavy cavalry, knights dripping in armor and full face helms uh, on male horses. And if they could charge into the much lighter armored Muslim forces, it was like a hot knife through butter. What the Muslims tended to do is they had horse archers. So they rode female horses and uh, wore much lighter clothing, but could actually fire bows from the back of their horses. Now, if that gets hit by a heavy knight, it's done for. But if they can maneuver, if they have room for maneuver, they can dodge the 
brute force and impact of a heavy cavalry charge and keep peppering the enemy with arrows from all directions and carry out feints and fake retreats and all this kind of stuff. So you've got a very nimble force by comparison. And the Westerners allowed Saladin enough space that he did exactly what he planned to do in his battle. The knights charged uphill, which drags on their momentum anyway. He just allowed his forces to melt to either side. The knights ran through the army, causing no damage. The Turkish and Muslim and Syrian and Arab forces reformed, uh, separating the knights from the main body of the of Westerners and the Franks, as they're called. And game over. At that point, Saladin starts rolling back pretty much every single principality and territory in the Middle East. And it's the third crusade that was called to try and stop this. And Richard the Lionheart, for the record, he was a terrible king of England. Lots of people get misty-eyed about Richard. He was uh, a warmonger. He couldn't speak English. He spoke French first. He said that he, uh, he would happily sell London if only he could find a buyer in his 10-year reign, give or take. He only spent 11 months in the country. People say, oh, well, you know, he was captured after the Third Crusade. He could have been here longer. Yeah, except he didn't take the short route home. He wanted to kind of show off on the way back. And he got captured by his own fault because he demanded roast chicken somewhere in Austria in an inn. And peasants don't ask for roast chicken and get grumpy about not getting it. So people realise he might have been a little bit more important than he was making on. Oh, and also one of the Austrian aristocrats he managed to offend in the Third Crusade was only too happy to capture him after the Crusade. So he, you know, he'd already made an enemy that way. However, Putting aside Richard's flaws, boy, did he know how to fight. And he's arguably one of the greatest generals in history because he fought a number of, well, he fought a pitch battle, he fought, he executed a siege, and he carried out a sneak attack all in the Third Crusade. All of them worked really well against Saladin, a man who had fought many battles and generally won. The only time Saladin tended to lose was against Richard, which shows Richard was pretty good at what he did. And then when Richard eventually came back to the West, he fought Philip Augustus, the King of France, and basically beat him every time. Which again, if you look at what Philip was doing with King John afterwards, Philip won every time. So it does show you that Richard was very, very good. And therefore he's a great character to have in the Assassin's Creed uh, game. And also, just after the Siege of Arcor, one of Richard's greatest uh, victories, that's a great thing to put him in. However, let's get back to the assassins, shall we? Because I'm going to bring up Marco Polo now. Marco Polo tells a great story. Marco Polo says that the way these men, these assassins, were inducted is they were taken to outside a great fort and they were imbibed with hash cakes. They were drugged and fell asleep. And then they woke up in this garden of paradise with dancing girls and fresh figs and all the good stuff. And they stay there for a day and they find it absolutely amazing. And then they are given more hash cakes and they fall asleep. And then they appear again outside this castle. And the leader of the assassins tells them that they have just witnessed paradise. They have just been to heaven for a brief amount of time and they can have it again if they fight as an assassin, these religious zealots. And it's a marvelous story. 
It's not true. And what the modern world shows is you don't need to do anything as elaborate as that to convince young men to self-immolate in the names of religion. But the thing about the assassins is, although they were Muslim, and to be specific, they were actually Nizari Ishmalis, which is a form at a branch of Shia Islam, they were hated by all Muslims. The assassins, and we the name is used accurately, they used poison daggers and they would attack key targets in the Middle East. So if it was deemed by the old man of the mountain. That was the name of the title of the leader of the assassins. And indeed, there he is in the Assassin's Creed game. Although it turns out later he's got access to alien technology and everything's after an apple and all this stuff. But the apple's actually a technical marvel. and It gets a bit weird. Rather unsatisfactory ending to the game. Uh, if you've never completed it and you just cannot beat the old man in the mountains, it's, it's don't attack him. You always have to... Uh, dodge and um, uh, riposte. That's the way you kill him. Anyway, I told you there'd be some mild spoilers. Uh, but the point is that it was down to the old man of the mountains choosing who lives and who dies. And these men would be sent out to attack key figures. And what's interesting is, going back to the military orders, is the assassins realized fairly early on that there was no point killing the leader of the Templars, the leader of the Hospitallers, because they were just instantly replaced. There were loads of men that could do that job. What they needed to do was kill things like the, the Shah of Persia or the, uh, the Count of Tripoli, etc. The actual families running various sites. And these men would attack with poison daggers and they showed no fear in being hacked to pieces after the assassination attempt. The assassins were genuinely feared and they had chosen their locations very wisely. It was a string of castles in modern-day Syria and northern Iraq and Iran as well, really arid areas. So where the castles weren't impregnable, to actually get a besieging army to sit in a desert whilst you're besieging this hard nut to crack is really, really difficult. There is uh, basically, you know, you no way to do it. And when you're looking at the forces of the Crusades, you have to take into account things like Saladin. You have to take into account the Franks, the, the Western Christian Crusaders. You also have to take into account things like the Byzantine Empire. But whereas the assassins had very few men, disproportionately they caused more damage and destruction, particularly in terms of dynastic takeovers, you know, uh, sons being murdered and et cetera, et cetera. They, uh, they have to be put in there in the, this list of other military forces that affected the outcome of the Crusades. But make no mistake about it, they were just as feared in, in the Islamic world as they were in the Christian world. They didn't care what your religion was. If the old man said you died, you died. That was until you come across the simply most destructive force in the Middle Ages. That is the Mongols. And the 13th century, if you're going to look at the entire world, has to be Mongol. These guys erupted out of Mongolia. They were to, and eventually they were to capture the whole of China, the whole of Russia, pretty much the entire Middle East. These people managed to fight and win a battle in Poland. 
And so what you have with the Mongol Empire in the 13th century is, well, there are two ways of setting up. In terms of overall size, it's the second largest, full stop. British Empire number one, Mongols number two. But in terms of the of a land-based empire, the thing about the British Empire is it was water-based and the, the lands were spread all over the globe. But in terms of one continuous empire, it was the largest. In terms of largest land-based empire, it was the largest. And they did this through sheer bloody violence at all times. And the assassins made a mistake. They killed some Mongol diplomats, at which point the Mongols were actually surprisingly fair. If you capitulated unconditionally and you paid your bills, chances are the Mongols would leave you alone. The, the reality is the Mongols never had enough men to properly occupy somewhere like China or, you know, spread themselves too thinly across the whole of Russia. What they did is they made sure that their extreme violence was there and everybody knew about it so that nobody dared cross them. So if you did what they told you to do, you basically got an easy ride, surprisingly so. But if you incur their wrath by killing things like diplomats and messengers, you could expect zero mercy. And the Mongols were the ones that were, were their sheer bloody-mindedness meant that they had to exact their revenge on the assassins. And they were the ones that went to these castles in the middle of the desert. And they were the ones that carried out siege warfare. And they were the ones who did not care how much men and money it took to dismantle the assassins. They did so. And they did so in their bloody way. They, they managed to pull together these, uh, these men and, and communities. There were women there as well. And if they weren't butchered on the spot, they were marched into deserts and simply died of, of, of malnourishment and lack of water. But they dismantled the assassins as a big political power. They still existed afterwards because we know this because later on, now, there's great debate about whether this is a continuation of the Eighth Crusade or whether it can be considered the Ninth Crusade. But bottom line, we have Prince Edward, who would later become Edward I, King of England. But Prince Edward was on crusade in the Middle East. And this is after the assassins were dismantled. And Edward was convinced that he needed to talk to a local trader in his private quarters. So Edward did so. Now, in his own private quarters, he's not going to be armed with anything more than just like a, a knife to, to cut up food. He certainly wouldn't be in armor. And this merchant came to see him, except this merchant was an assassin with a poison dagger. And the man lunged at Edward. And we have broad accounts of the fight between the two of them. You know, you have the heir to the English throne thrashing around on the floor with this man waving a razor-sharp knife, dripping in poison, the two of them fighting on fighting to the death. In the end, Edward managed to beat the assassin to death with a wooden stool. However, he was cut and he was mortally wounded and stayed in bed for many weeks recovering from the poison. There are reports, these are probably exaggerated, of his wife personally tending to his wounds. I'm sure she looked in on him. They loved each other very much, but he needed a proper apothecary and doctors rather than just the love of a good woman. But he, of course, survived this attack by an assassin. But that's one of the last occasions that it actually happened. The reality is the Mongols did everybody a favor. 
Nobody liked the assassins, but they were very much uh, a past force by the time you get to 1300. They're not really a thing anymore. And this is something that Assassin's Creed just can't let go of. The Templars, similarly, as I've already mentioned, military order, and in the game, it's the Templars versus the Assassins, and that makes sense in the first game. But by the time we get to games number two, three, four, um, particularly when we get to things like Assassin's Creed 3, which for the record is set during the American War Revolution, first of all, there are no Assassins anymore, but secondly, the Templars were destroyed, and there are loads of conspiracy theories around this. People going, oh yeah, well, what happened to their money? Fair point. But the answer is we don't know. The answer isn't, it's definitely buried in a church in Scotland, okay? Oh, and how did the Templars make all their money? Well, it's got nothing to do with Jesus or knowing that he's got a family tree or anything like that. The Templars were one of many military orders, and actually the Hospitallers, which have been evolved into St. John's Ambul Ambulance, and is where we get the term hospital from, for the record, they also tended to the sick as well as fighting for Christ. The Hospitallers were just as rich as the Templars, if not more so, and they didn't involve any kind of weird conspiracy theories. Maybe we need to do another podcast at some point about the Templars themselves. But the point is, they were both the Templars and the Assassins are very much part of the story of the Crusades, and not really anything beyond that point. So, with that in mind, we've covered all kinds of things. Uh, this has been a neon look at the Assassins and the Assassins Creed video game. Hope you've enjoyed it. There'll be more next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.